Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy How many of you have ever done some sort of a building project? Maybe built a house. Anyone here ever built a house? Yeah, anybody ever done a major renovation of any sort? Yeah. If you've done any of these kinds of things, I don't know if you're like me, but, but it starts to feel like, is this thing ever going to end? Do you know what I'm talking about? Will I ever make it? It's kind of like there's like all these mountains of different things that you need to accomplish, mountains you need to get over. And it's like you, you summit one mountain, and it's like there's a whole other mountain on the other side. You know what I'm saying? And it just, it feels like it's never going to end. I, I remember um, the house that we are currently living in, we began building, and I use the word began because it's not fully done still, um, but we began building that home about nine or ten years ago, and, uh, and I remember that building that was just, I was working still at the church full-time, pastoring here full-time, and trying to build this house on the side, and it was a little bit crazy, and at that point, point, um, I remember um, that uh, I, my day off at that, that time in ministry was Mondays. Every Monday I took, took a day off. And so every Monday for a year and a half, Dave Frankie and my dad, Dave Lewis, would come to our house and we would chip away at some siding. It took us like a year and a half to do just the siding on the house. That's only one part of a house, by the way. There's more than just siding that you need on a house. And it felt like, honestly, there was times where it would just be like, it was just this, I'd, at first I'd be like, I would phone them like, you know, on the Sunday or talk to them at church. Hey, you guys coming over tomorrow? Oh, sure. And then I didn't even need to tell them anymore. They just showed up every single Monday. It was like, when, it was, when our house was pretty much done, they were like, well, now what am I going to do? Because they would be there every Monday. It was kind of like the normal thing. But it just felt like there were these mountains in front of us. You know, was like, and there was times where I was like, God, I just want this to be done. I just want to go to sleep. You know, it just it feels overwhelming. And in many ways, this was the situation that was happening in Jerusalem with the remnant, right? There was a few million Jews that had gone into Babylonian captivity, into exile. But how many Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city and the wall? Do you remember? How many Jews? 15. A lot more than 15. <laughs> a lot more than 15. There was about 42,000 that returned. But thank you for guessing because no one was saying anything, so that's wonderful. <laughs> About 42,000, a small little remnant returned to rebuild. And I think this is what started, they started to feel this, that, that it was just like they just were done. There was this mountain in front of them to have to rebuild this temple, and, and they just couldn't get it done. I think especially the leader of them, Zerubbabel was his name, the governor, um, they had actually laid the foundation. When God came and, and got Zechariah to start to speak to the people, um, it's interesting because 16 years before Zechariah showed up on the scene with this message from God, they had began to lay the foundation of the temple. 16 years earlier. And so this had, and then if you remember, I mentioned that Haggai, the prophet, came along and was like, come on guys, let's get back to work. Because after two years, they stopped to rebuild. They, they laid the foundation and they stopped. They did, so for 14 years, it had just sat there. Haggai, the prophet, came along. He's like, come on, get back to work. Your houses are all built. Time to build God's house. And so Haggai motivates them to get going. And do you remember, I mentioned this the other Sunday, how long was it after Haggai got them motivated to get constructing again, did God have to get Zechariah to come back in to say, let's keep going, to remind them, to encourage them? Do you remember? It was, it was quite short. It's like not even two months. It's less than two months that Zechariah has to show up to go, all right, God wants to give you another word. <laughs> They've already grown discouraged. They've already grown weary of the task that's in front of them. And so they needed some encouragement, and that, that's what we've been receiving in the book of Zechariah so far. Uh, we're in chapter 4, but, but we've already had four visions, and, and this morning in chapter 4, we're going to see the fifth vision, and with the fifth vision came this encouraging reminder to keep on going. No matter the mountain that is in front of you, keep going. With God, 
All things are possible. Keep going, keep going. You know, I already mentioned we are, we are studying the book of Zechariah. If you're new or perhaps visiting, um, we just take books of the Bible and we just walk through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're currently studying the book of Zechariah. This morning we are in chapter 4. And it is here that he gives an encouraging word to Zechariah, or to Zerubbabel rather, to give to Zerubbabel, the governor, and to the people. But you know what? It's also for us. Because how many of you know that it's not just building projects in life that we can get a little bit down with? Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? Sometimes we can get a little discouraged, a little worn down, and we want to give up just with life in general. Anybody ever feel that way? Even just living for Jesus sometimes, it can be like, this is hard. This feels like it's too much. It feels like there's just a mountain in the way that we have to get over. And we wonder, you know, we honestly wonder, might mountains move? We're going to see this morning that with God's help, with the help of His Spirit, that mountains may move. Mountains will move. Why don't you take your Bibles? Listen, there's Bibles all around you in the seats. I went through this morning to make sure there was lots out there. You need a Bible to follow along. And in the seat in front of you, grab one of those Bibles, because I love, there's no better sound than the pages turning of Bibles. And so open up your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. And if you don't know where Zechariah is, um, simply find Matthew, which is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, the first book of the New Testament, and go backwards. Find Matthew, go backwards, you'll hit Malachi, and then go back a little bit further, and you will hit Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 4. But, but let's, pray, um, let's pray before we look this morning at might mountains move. Might mountains move. Let's pray. Father, this morning I just ask that you would speak to each and every one of us here. Lord, we know that you have called us to great tasks, to great to great things, to live and to work for you, Lord. Even just living the Christian life is not an easy thing to do. And I ask God, I pray for those this morning that maybe are down or discouraged, that are struggling perhaps. Lord, I pray that today that, that each and every one of us would find our hope and our strength in you and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us through your word. Lord, help us to keep on going, to not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So, Lord, speak to us today. Teach us through your word. I thank you for your word and the power of it. Amen. All right, well, the first thing we're going to see is might. Might mountains move. Let's look at might. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. Zechariah, at this point, is completely exhausted. Okay, so don't forget, I know we read this over, this has already taken us about a month and a bit to get to chapter 4. But this, these visions that Zechariah has had, he's had four visions up to this point. This will be the fifth vision in the book of Zechariah. Don't forget, they have all happened in one night. Okay, so he's been awakened, and then he's probably fallen back asleep. And then the angel will wake him again, hey, what do you see now? Yeah, right? and, that's, and he's exhausted probably by this point here to the point where he says it was like a man awakened out of his sleep. Do you know that feeling when you're in like a deep sleep and all of a sudden you're woken up? What, do you know what I'm, and you're kind of disoriented. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? I remember uh, quite a number of years ago, our, our son Micah was, was really sick and he'd been throwing up. And, and, um, and so we, we put him to bed at night, and I remember we said, listen, if you need us, just call for us. We'll... And we slept that night. We, we opened the door of our bedroom to make sure that we could hear him, no problem, in case he was sick at all. And I remember sleeping. We fell, he, we're like, oh, he fell asleep. Okay. And we fell asleep, and I remember waking up. And it, I, I don't remember if he was throwing up or what, but I remember being like, I need, you know, it's just you're startled. You're, you're... This is what's happening here with Zechariah. He's awake and startled. And I remember waking up, getting out of bed, and I just remember running and I ran straight into the wall, <laughs> like smacked right into the wall. And I was like, I think Andrea, I think I was kind of out of commission for a bit, and Andrea just kind of got up and dealt with whatever was going on. But that's that feeling that Zechariah is having here. You're disoriented. You're kind of like, what's going on? A, like a man awakened out of his sleep. He's exhausted. He's been up and down all night so far, and he's not done. There's still more visions to come, right? But in this fifth vision, he's awakened out of his sleep. I like what Sandy Adams points out or what he says about this. He says, it's no accident the fifth vision comes at a point of physical exhaustion. God is going to teach us that when he does a work, the power originates in his spirit, not in us. It's kind of the idea that th this is why this starts off with this idea. It starts with exhaustion. God's going to say, yep, you're exhausted. I've got plans for that. I'm going to do something here. So we, we go on, verse 2. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold 
with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it with seven lips. Other translations say seven channels or seven spouts on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So it's a little bit difficult to kind of picture, you know, what's being, what he, he Zechariah is describing what he's seeing here, but we're kind of like, what's really going on? The, the one thing that Zechariah would have recognized for sure is this lamp that he figured, he, he sees in his vision. The lamp that he saw, this golden lamp that he talks about, was the menorah. Now, the menorah was this special lamp. It had seven different lights on it that was in the holy place of the temple. The, whole, the, the temple, of course, had two different rooms. There was the holy place, and then there was, what was the other one? The most holy place, or the holy of holies. And, of course, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, that place only one person could go into one time a year. That was the high priest, right, on the Day of Atonement. But the, the holy place was where the other priests would minister. And this light, the menorah, with these seven lamps on it, it was, it was the only source of light in the holy place. And it was never to burn out. It was to remain burning nonstop. It represented a number of different things. How so they were always to be a light for God to the Gentiles, different things like that. But the, the, the fact was it could never go out because it was the only light in there. And so it was a very tedious job that the priest would have to work morning and night every single day. They'd have to trim the wicks. They'd have to refill the oil and to keep this lamp burning. And so he sees this lamp, but that would be obvious to Zechariah. But these other things are a little bit strange and confusing. All these extra things that came with the menorah. And I have a picture here that I found on the internet. And I don't know totally how accurate it is, but this is the idea of what he saw. So there's the menorah, but there's also this bowl that's on top of it. And then the scripture talked about these lips or channels to the lamps. And then two olive trees on either side with these two branches that pour into the bowl with the oil. Some, some, some commentators aren't sure. Perhaps there's even, because it's not clear with how it's described, there might even be seven channels coming to each lamp. We're not totally sure. But this is the idea of what he saw, just to give you a bit of an idea. What is important is not so much the, the exact details of what he saw, but the meaning is what is important. And that's what we're going to see, because in fact, he's going to ask the angel what he asks about each and every thing, and the angel doesn't even tell him what they all are. He just says, well, this is what it means, basically. The, the idea, though, is this. This is what we need. From this picture, we need to understand this. This is a fully automatic menorah. That's what it is. It does not require, it does not require anybody to press oil. It does not require anybody to trim wicks or to refill the oil. Do you see that? That's what this picture is. A fully automatic menorah. All right? Requires no maintenance. Automatic. So what is this all about? Look at verse 4. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He's like, I want to know what this stuff's about. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? Kind of funny. I mean, he just said that. <laughs> no, my Lord, I don't know what these are. I love that Zechariah is not too proud to admit that he doesn't understand things. Aren't you thankful? I'm so thankful. Uh, like, I, in fact, it's one of the things I, I kind of regret a little bit that I, in the past, but I still do this, I'm a little bit too proud sometimes to admit when I don't understand something. I think we can all be like this, right? It seems like everyone else gets it, but I don't, I think. That's, you know, and so it's like I'm too afraid to ask questions, you know? It's like, this, listen, there's, there's no sense in bluffing, right? There's no sense in bluffing. Just be honest, admit it. I, I remember one time, um, one of my kids showed me a meme. Do you know what a meme is? I mean, I've got an example. Here's a meme. A meme, right? So, so this is a meme. It's just a, a picture. Sometimes it's a video, and it'll have text on it, and it's usually communicating some sort of an idea. Oftentimes, they're to be a joke of some sort, to be kind of funny, like that one there. Um, so I remember my kids showing me this meme, and I remember them, t they, they're like, <laughs> and they show it to me, and I go, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. I'm never too proud to admit to my kids that I don't get it. I think I can be too proud with other people, but I'm like, I don't get it. And they're like, well, and they try to start explaining it to me. And I'm like, no, I don't get it still. And then finally they go, you know, I don't get it either. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not sure, as I was thinking about that, I'm like, I'm not sure if they said that just so that they could stop having to explain it to their old man brain. Like this young person talk and my old man brain can't get it. I'm not sure if that's what it was. I genuinely think they didn't get it either. But, you know, I love it because Zechariah is like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. And, and so what he says, I don't know. No, I don't. He's, the angel's like, you don't get it? No, I don't get it. 
And what's cool is interesting is that he doesn't actually explain all the items, but he rather now gives the meaning of the vision because that is the most important thing. And what is the meaning? Look at verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by, but, oh man, you guys, there's like three of you who know how to talk. (laughs) You guys know this verse. You've said it probably a million times. You've heard it said a million times. This is the meaning of this whole crazy lamp thing. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If you remember in chapter 3, the vision um, that Austin preached about, the vision there was basically to, to encourage um, purity, but to, was to encourage really Joshua the high priest, the religious leader of the people, and to encourage the people. Here in chapter 4, the vision is really to encourage the civil leader, the governor Zerubbabel and the people. What's interesting is I studied this. Commentators point out the difference here because we've heard this, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We've all heard this. I'm sure some of you, anybody have it in their house on the wall, on the fridge? Anybody here? Oh, you're so unspiritual. <laughs> I don't either. So. <laughs> but we know this verse. We, this is a common verse. And, and I didn't know this, but as I studied it, the, he, the commentators point this out, that in the Hebrew, these words actually have a different meaning to them. We kind of think not by might and power. It's kind of the same thing, but it's not. Might here, it actually focuses more on a collective strength. It speaks about the resources of a group, of a many, of, such as an army. That's what might speaks of here. Whereas the Hebrew word here for power doesn't speak about many, but it speaks about one. It speaks about individual strength, what can be done in ourselves individually. So do you see, he's saying it's, he says it's not about many, the power of many, and it's not about the power of one. Well, then what is it about? <laughs> Remember, God's calling them to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel was the one, he was the individual leader granted the task of, of, of leading those people in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. But don't forget, there was also 42,000, this, this small remnant that had returned to help rebuild. And for them, at this point, they let that temple sit for 14 years because it took them two years alone just to lay the foundation for the temple. They were done. They were like, we can't do this. There's not enough of us. It's an impossible task. And make no mistake, they couldn't do it. It was an impossible task. That's the whole point that God is trying to communicate with this. You can't do it with many and you can't do it with one but you can with the power of God's Spirit. You see, oil in the Scriptures is a picture or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so what is God communicating with this vision? This vision, He didn't just have a tank of oil. He didn't just say, here's some oil for you to get the job done, and my Spirit's going to help you. He says there is an unending supply, an unending supply of the power of my Spirit. You can't do this in yourself. But I have an unlimited, unending supply of the Holy Spirit for you to get this task done. Two olive trees feeding into this bowl that that fed into those lamps. A job that would usually require all kinds of people just to keep that lamp burning. God says, I've got it all taken care of. I'm going to do all of it. My Holy Spirit will do all of it. You see, that job that would require people to press oil and priests to refill the lamps, with God, it wouldn't be necessary, he's saying. He would provide this unending supply supply of oil. It's not about the might of many, and it's not about the power of one. It's about the Holy Spirit. And I wonder how many of us this morning would be honest to admit if we've ever felt that kind of I can't kind of feeling. Have you ever felt that? I can't. I can't be gentle towards so-and-so. I can't forgive that person for what they did. I can't love my spouse like God calls me to love my spouse. I can't, I can't be free of that addiction. I can't be free of that thought pattern that seems to control my life. I can't, I can't, I can't. Do you know why? Because you can't. That's the reality. That's what God is trying to communicate here. In yourself, whether it be might or power, whether it be many or one, you can't do it. You can't do it. We were not meant to live this Christian life, to have the fruit of the Spirit without the power of the Holy Spirit. We were not meant 
We were not meant to do the work that God's called us to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. We were not meant to be a witness for Him without the power of the Holy Spirit. In my mentoring that I receive every Thursday, one of the verses, I think I shared this with you a little while back, one of the verses they've asked us to memorize in our group is 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 11. I'm only going to read 8 to 9 this morning. It blew my mind, honestly, as I memorized this verse and as I thought more about it because of what it says. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, it says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. You ever felt that way? I can't take this. I can't. That's the I can't, isn't it? I can't do it. It's beyond what I am capable of doing. Indeed, he goes on to say this, indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. He, he felt like they had a death sentence on their lives. Can you be in more despair? Can you be more I can't do it? I don't think so. But then look at what he says. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So maybe some of you have heard that verse. You know, maybe you've heard this verse, that God will ne never give you more than you can handle. Do you guys know that verse? It's not in the Bible. It's not a verse. It's not, it's not a verse. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, God will not, he will never give you more than you can handle. Because this verse just told us, he absolutely will give you more than you can handle. He absolutely will put things in your life that you go, I can't, God, I can't. I can't do it. I think the reason we have this false idea that that verse is in the Bible that God will never give you more than you can handle is because I think it's, I think it's a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 10.13. Genuinely. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So in regards to temptation, yes. But in regards to life, no. <laughs> he will always give you way more than you can handle. He will. Why? what this verse said, so that you will not rely on yourselves because it's not about might. It's not about power, but by His Spirit. That's what He's trying to communicate to Zerubbabel. That's what He's trying to communicate to us. We need the power of God's Spirit in our lives to live this life for Him. It is an impossible task without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I might be scaring some of you this morning, you don't forget you entered into our church that had a sign that says Duncan Pentecostal Church. We are a Pentecostal. We're a charismatic church, which means that we believe in the empowering working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what we believe. We believe that. You know, in, in the book of Acts, some of you were with us when we studied the book of Acts, and we learned all about this, that the, the prepositions of the Spirit. Do you remember what the prepositions of the Spirit were? The prepositions of the Spirit, that Jesus taught us this. He said the Holy Spirit will be in is one of them, upon you is the other. There's the first one. The Holy Spirit will be with you. Thank you, Ethan. The Holy Spirit will be with you, in you, and upon you. Three prepositions that Jesus speaks about. We learned all about this in the book of Acts when we were back in the gym. Remember a long time ago when there was no electricity and like, like there was no power and we had to, you know. Anyway, it was a long time ago, it feels. But, um, but we learned about this. The whole, Jesus said this. He said the Holy Spirit is with you. Why is the Holy Spirit with us? Why is the Holy Spirit with us? What did he, he taught us this? Yes, but not entirely. To guide us in what way? The Holy Spirit is with us. He's with every person on this earth. To do what? To convict, to convict, to draw to Jesus, to convict, to show us we need a Savior. The Bible, he says it, unless the Spirit draws you, you can't come to me. So, so we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to show us our need for a Savior. And so he says, the Holy Spirit is with you. Then he says, but, but he says right in the same statement, he says, but the Holy Spirit will also be in you. Now, why is the Holy Spirit in you? Why, the Holy Spirit's not in everybody. Why would the Holy Spirit be in us? So, yes, yeah, seal, a deposit to seal, for salvation. A seal or a deposit of salvation. So the Holy Spirit is with us to convict us of sin, to show us our need for a Savior. 
But the Holy Spirit then is in us. If you put your faith in Christ, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be in you. That's what he does in John 19, 20, where he breathes on them. He breathes on, do you remember he breathes on the disciples? He says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. And the Holy Spirit is in them, a seal, a deposit of their salvation. But there's another preposition that Jesus spoke of with the Holy Spirit. And what was that? In Luke, he mentioned it, and he also mentioned it in Acts chapter 1. And that's the upon. Now, why, why would he say, so the, so the Holy Spirit's with us to convict us of sin. We, we come to Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in us once we come to Christ, a deposit, a, a, a seal of our salvation. Why would the Holy Spirit need to come upon us? To empower us. To empower us. To empower us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what he talked about here in Zechariah. He said, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. Because we can't do it in our own strength. You know, I'd say this. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. But not every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus showed us. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you for, for power. I remember feeling so frustrated before God's Spirit came upon me because I was unable, I felt, to live for Him. My life felt like it was up and then down and up and then down. Have you ever felt that with your life, with Jesus? Anybody? Yes. Have you ever felt like your life's a bit of the Romans 7 kind of life? Do you know what the Romans 7 is? Romans 7 is the, it, it, it actually, if you look at your subtitle in your Bible, it probably says something like struggling with sin. And where Paul, the way he describes it, Romans 7, the Romans 7 life is, how Paul describes it is, is why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And then he says, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. Anybody ever felt that in their life? The up and the down, the up and the down, yeah, right? And I remember, I remember walking with the Lord, but being like, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. But then I asked him to fill me. I waited upon him for his Holy Spirit power to come. And do you know what happened was then Romans 8 came along. You see, Romans 8 is the answer to Romans 7. And if you look in your Bibles at what Romans 8 talks about, it says life through the Spirit. Romans 7, struggling with sin. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, Romans 8, life through the Spirit. Everything changed for me when the Holy Spirit came upon me. That, that's, that's the solution to Romans 7 is Romans 8. When I asked him, when I waited, I said, God, fill me, I need your power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and this is what god would do he would um, empower zerubbabel and and the remnant in jerusalem to supernaturally rebuild his temple by his holy spirit power and you might be here this morning thinking well peter yeah but i don't i don't i'm, I'm not called to rebuild some temple somewhere you're right god hasn't called you to do that but he's called you to do something much harder he has called you to live this christian life in this world that we live in that's a harder task. That's not a six-month project. That's not a two-month project. That's a lifelong project that we can't do in ourselves without the power of His Spirit in our lives. You know, when we try to live the commands of Scripture in our own strength, it just turns into fail and frustration. It just turns into, honestly, it feels like the commands sometimes are just taunting me. They're laughing at me. Ha, ha, ha. You can't do it, Peter. It's right, I can't. Not without the power of the Holy Spirit upon my life. It's only with the power of God's Spirit that we can live how God has called us to live. And it's, it's not that we're going to be perfect. Hear me, it's not that we're going to always get it right even. But we know that we will have the power to live for Him how He has called us to live. And so over, you know, I believe that over all of our lives, over all of our ministries, it needs to be written not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. That's the life he's called us to live. So, might mountains move? Well, it's not about might. We know that. So let's look secondly at the mountains. Verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Now, we, we just learned it's not about might and it's not about power, but it, it's about his spirit. But how many, if we're honest, when you look at the mountains in front of you that you need to overcome, they look mighty big? If we're honest, do you know what I'm saying? Those mountains look like they're insurmountable. That's what it kind of looks like. And for Zerubbabel and the small remnant in Jerusalem, the mountain, 
might have looked like all kinds of things. Mountains that I think we are probably well aware of in our lives. Probably the mountain of discouragement, the mountain of exhaustion, mountain of weakness, and, and the mountain of temptation. Even, even the mountain of opposition. There was real enemies that could come at any time. There were physical enemies and there were spiritual enemies. Obviously, there was the devil that didn't want them to get any, anywhere with that work as well. I, I think even just this last week in our team meeting, we were talking and reviewing the community gatherings from last Sunday. And, and one, one of our staff members was talking about, yeah, you know, in our gathering, there was just, it was such an honest and real discussion. And everyone just kind of opened up about how, you know, it seems like on Sundays, everything goes wrong. It's like the kids are fighting and you know, we're fighting as spouses and nothing's working and everything's trying to stop us from getting to church. That's called the mountain of opposition. That's called the mountain of the enemy. There's a spiritual enemy that does not want you to be here. But it was interesting because they shared about how everyone said, but you know what, when I get there, I feel encouraged and I feel like that's where I needed to be. So of course everything's going to try to work against you, the mountain of opposition to stop you from being here, from fellowshipping, from hearing God's word. But for Zerubbabel, there was actually a literal mountain. There was an actual mountain that was there. Do you know what that mountain was? It was a mountain of rubble. It was a mountain of garbage from the past destruction that had taken place in Jerusalem. There was literally a mountain. At this point, so a little bit of a history lesson here. The, um, there's the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. If you, if you went to kids' church at our church, you would know this. Um, because Dan is teaching this all right now. Uh, so, so there's like the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, which was, the t- was 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, they were carried off into exile by the Assyrians before, um, before the, the um, southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, were carried off into exile. So that northern kingdom was like 100 and something years earlier. They got carried off. And so at that point, there was destruction. Israel had been attacked. But, but by the time um, the southern kingdom gets carried off by, it's now Babylon that takes over. They take over the rule from the Assyrians. They come in. They, they lay havoc to Jerusalem. They destroy all kinds of things. And they take a whole ton of Judah into exile. But they left a remnant in Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember this, but they, they, talk, they left a remnant. And then that remnant got kind of scared and ran off to Egypt and all these other things go on. And so finally, it was actually about 20 years after, because it was a 70-year captivity, 20 years after they got carried into captivity, that Nebuchadnezzar finally is like, I'm done with you guys. And he goes in three times, in fact, in Israel's history, the temple and, and Jerusalem gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So at this point, this remnant comes back from their Babylonian captivity. It's now been about, uh, so it had been 50 years since the, the last time that everything had just been completely destroyed. 50 years. They come back, they begin laying the foundation, and then they stop after two years, right? And so it's now been about 65 years. Since, like, the, the, so there is a literal mountain of rubble that is sitting all over Jerusalem and all over around this temple. Before they could rebuild, they had to remove this mountain and clear it away. And that mountain, I have to think of this, you know what that mountain reminded them of? It reminded them all of their past, of their failure and of their mistake and of the stuff that got them sent into captivity in the first place. They return to rebuild and they just look at it and it's just a mess, a big mess of past. And I think for some of us, sometimes the biggest mountain is simply our past. It's just our past, the pain of our past, the failures from our past, maybe the disappointments that we've had in the past, or the regrets, and whatever it might be, there's all these obstacles in our path from the past that stop us moving forward with God's plans. And so how do we even begin to build with so much garbage from the past, with this mountain of garbage in our lives from the past? How do we do it? We, we can only do it one way, and that's with God's help. Did you notice that's what he said in verse 7? He said, he said it shall, what, what are you, O mountain? You shall become a plain. If you've ever built a house, I've built a couple of homes now, and both of them have been kind of on mountainsides. And I'm always like, why do I build the most hard, difficult places? It's not easy to build on a mountainside. If you build on a plain, it's much easier. A flat, level lot. I always dreamed of building on something flat and level. I never do it, but right? It's my, and this is what God says. He says, that mountain, I shall make it like a plain. Because, and you need to know this. It's not, he doesn't say Zerubbabel, you'll make it. He says, I will make it a plain. God says, I will do this work. He's the one speaking here in verse 7. Because it's only God that can take your past and turn it into something that he will build upon. We need to understand that. Only God can take our past and make it something that actually is now to be built upon. 
He can take your mess and he can turn it into a message. That, that's our God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we serve. Whatever it is, whatever your past is, the past is in the past. Let God's grace cover it. Let him build upon it. Because notice he goes on in verse 7. It continues. And he shall bring forward, he being Zerubbabel, shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So God promises, I'm going to make that mountain level for you. I'm going to level it out for you to build on. And then he says this. He says, Zerubbabel, you'll even finish the job. He was the one that started it. He laid the foundation. Now he says, and you're going to be the one to finish it. You're going to put the final capstone on this building. And it's the same promise. God gives us the same promise in Philippians 1.6. Right? He does. He, he says, Being com- you can be confident of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done building with you either. You might feel like, oh man, all this past, all this mess that I've done. God says, I'm not done. I'm not done. And you know what I love? Notice what the shouts will be when it is done. What are the shouts going to be? What does it say in the text? Say it loud. Everybody say it loud. There's more. Yeah, grace. Grace to it. They're not going to shout, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you did it. What do they shout? Grace. Grace to it. They're saying, it was nothing to do with us. That's what grace means. Undeserved favor. Getting what you don't deserve. They will all recognize that it's because of God's spirit and grace, not their might, not their power. And it's the same thing for us. It's not because of our might or our power. You may have a past. God says, we all do. I can build on that. I can take it. My grace is sufficient. So it's not by might and it's not mountains. Might mountains move. It's not mountains that can stop God. So what about move? Thirdly, let's look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, wait a minute. Did you hear what this just said? What has Peter just been preaching to you about? And now, what does this verse say? It just undid everything Peter just preached. Zerubbabel's going to do it. Zerubbabel did it. No, he didn't do it. I thought we just said it's going to be grace. Great, what? He says, no, Zerubbabel's going to do it. What? I I thought it was not by might nor by power. I thought it was by the Spirit. Does Zerubbabel do it or does God do it? Right? Who's doing it now? Listen, here's the reality. There are no shortcuts when it comes to living for God. Here's the thing. God didn't just want to build a temple. God wanted to build a people. Right? And so he could have. There were shortcuts. Could God have just spoke a temple into existence and dropped it down from heaven? Of course he could have. Of course he could have. He could have just spoken into being and bam, there's the temple. But but God wasn't just concerned about a temple being there. He was concerned about, about a people. And so God's working in his people was just as important as God working for his people. You know, this past week in my, my morning time, I've been reading through the book of Philippians in my morning time. And I read Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which I think speaks to this so so clearly. This is what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who works out their salvation? We do. With fear and trembling, he says. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he goes on to say this. For, do that, because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to, fulfill, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Okay, wait a minute. Who does it? Both are, it says you work it, but then he says God works it. Yes, we work together. We work together. You see, the reality is this. We work out what God works in. We work out what God works in. He gives us the strength through his spirit. I imagine it, it's sort of something like this. Don't take steroids, they're not good for you. But if you were working out, it's like God goes, here's the steroids. He gives you the strength. You know what the thing is? If you just get steroids and don't do any working out, do you know what's going to happen? It's really bad for you. 
you have all kinds of organ problems, your heart can fail, um, you'll actually just get fat. So we sometimes think of those big, massive bodybuilders, and we go, oh, they're just on steroids. Yes, they may be using steroids, but you know what? They still have to work out, right? And this is what God says, I will give you the strength, but it's still up to you to work out. Those bodybuilders are still extremely disciplined, right, to get up every day and to lift weights. And in the same way, God says, I'm going to work something in you, the power of my spirit, but you have to work out. You've got to be the one physically working it out. You've got to do it. And sometimes, you know, it's not an either or. It's a both and. And sometimes I really wish that things would be just, be done for me. How many of you wish it was just like that? The shortcuts in the Christian life, right? Or it's like, God, deliver me of this. Thank you. Right? And we just, like the shortcut, you know, and it's, he does. He promises that he'll deliver us. He'll free us of whatever it is. He'll give us the strength to say no. He promises. But, but the reality is, is that I have to work that out in my life. There must be a partnership with him. I must move with him. I have to move with him. And so might mountains move? Yes, when we move in partnership with the strength of God's spirit in our lives, mountains will move. He continues in verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And when the foundation had been finished, they laid it, they started it 16 years before this. They finished it after two years. So 14 years earlier to this, prior to this, the foundation was done. What's interesting is that when that foundation was laid, does anyone know what happened? There was kind of some celebration, but kind of not. Anyone know? It's in, I think Ezra 3 or 4 talks about this there was an, like an indistinguishable sound of weeping and cheering, singing, celebrating, and mourning. Because it says that the younger generation who never knew the former temple celebrated. We did it. We finished after two years. We've got the foundation done. They celebrated. They sang. They rejoiced. Meanwhile, the older generation, there were some that had been around right? 50 years earlier, when, before it was completely destroyed, they remembered Solomon's temple. And it says that when they saw the new foundation laid, they wept. They wept. And so there's this weird noise going on. Right? And everyone's trying to figure out what's going on here. It's just this weird noise. What's happening? It said it could be heard long away even. Because this, this, this generation, this old generation is remembering what once had been and they look at this new temple and it's so small. It was so small compared to what they remember. It had held none of the glory that they remembered. And so God says, listen, don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise that. And because the reality is, is this, that God works with small things. In fact, I think it's his preference if you read the Bible, it seems like he loves to work with small things because then he gets all the glory. Think about David and Goliath. You've got small versus big. Think about Gideon. You know the story of Gideon. Remember Gideon hiding down in his threshing floor, right, so that the Midianites don't come and steal his lunch money? And the angel shows up and says, Gideon, oh mighty warrior. Me? Right, and he's hiding away. And he's like, he calls Gideon to go and to deliver Israel of the Midianites. You know the story of Gideon. So he goes and he finally, like, he chops down a bunch of Asherah poles and things like that. And all of Israel's like, what are you doing? And they get all angry at him. And he calls together these Israelites. They're not an army. They're basically a bunch of farmers that come together. No offense, farmers, because I know there are some in this room. But um, you're strong, actually. Farmers blow my mind. They get up early and work hard. But these are guys that are not trained in war. They've got, like, their, you know, they've got, like, a hammer and a, not a hammer, I guess farmers use hammers. They got like a shovel and a rake, you know, and it's like that's what they're going to go to battle with. And they gather together, I think, 30, 32,000, I think, in Israel, come together to fight 135,000 Midianites. Not very good odds. And God's like, yeah, it's too big. What? So what does God do? He's like, tell those that, tell those that are kind of scared, tell them that they can go home. 20,000 leave. Gideon's like, oh boy. Now we're down to like, they're like down to like 10 or 12,000 people. And God's like, oh, this is no good. There's still too many. What? And so what happens next? He's like, get everyone to go take a drink. And Gideon's like, I see what's coming here, right? Because there's only 300 guys that actually get down and they actually bring the water up to the mouth. Everyone else just sticks their face right down in the water like a dog and laps it up. 
And God's like, okay, all those guys, tell them to go home. And they're all like, oh, thank God I did the wrong thing. Right? And they run home. Gideon's left with 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. Do you know what the odds are? 450 to 1. And God's like, that's better. Small. I like small. I can work with small. Think about even the feeding of the 5,000. This is an incredible teaching if we had time to really go into it. The feeding of the 5,000 versus the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000 took how many loaves and fish? Five loaves, two fish. And I forget how many basketfuls. I think 12. I think 12 basketfuls were left over after collecting everything. The feeding of the 4,000, do you know how many loaves and fish it took to feed 4,000? I think it was eight, no, seven. Seven loaves and three fish. It took more to feed less, and there were less basketfuls left over. Isn't that interesting? Because God says, I can do more with less. I can do more with less. See, here's the reality. Here's the thing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But everything minus Jesus equals nothing. That's how God works. And so he says, don't despise the small. Don't despise the day of small things. I can work with the small. This is why God even told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said, my grace is all you need. That's all you need. My power works best in weakness. So how does Paul respond? So now he says, okay, well, that's the deal. He says, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Isn't that interesting? Oh, if God wants weak and small, I can do that. Perfect. He says, don't despise the seemingly small things in your life because it just gives more room for God to work. In fact, look what he says about the small things. He goes on to say this. He wants to strengthen them. Look at the rest of verse 10. He says, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Now, immediately, this passage, which ranged through the whole earth, you got to remember these, these, these Jewish people, they were very versed in the scriptures. And so what would they think of right away? They would immediately think of 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. This is what 2 Chronicles, we have this one, Joby, on the slide, which says this. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen. It's the same thing, right? Verse 10, he says, what? These seven of the eyes, they, they range throughout the whole earth. And what, is, and what would they think of right away this previous passage for the eyes of the lord range throughout the whole earth to do what to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him god looks for people doing the small things so that he can strengthen them so that he can build them up we all tend to despise the small don't we right we say who's despised the day of small things and everyone's like i have (laughs) right none of us want the small things god says don't despise it i want to strengthen it when you're faithful with little you'll be given much Well, we close off now with starting in verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? We're never actually told what the olive trees are, so if you're wondering, we're not going to find out. But then he goes on in verse 12. And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the gold oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones. You might notice a little footnote in the Bible there. It literally in the Hebrew is, these are the two sons of oil. That's what it actually says. Who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now commentators all agree. We don't know exactly who the olive trees are. I think it's probably Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Not totally sure. But the branches we're told here, what the branches are. It's quite clear, every commentator agrees with this, that the branches are one branch being Joshua the high priest and the other branch being Zerubbabel, the governor who God has called to, 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 to carry out the work for him. They've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to lead God's remnant in Jerusalem at this time for the rebuild. But it's interesting because here, here our translation doesn't totally get it, but they're called sons of oil. Now, it, this is a common idiom in the Bible, a son of something. You ever heard that phrase used before in the Bible? Anyone, any examples? Sons of thunder, right. So that was James and John, right? These two brothers, they were known as the sons of thunder. Why were they, we don't know for sure, but I think it's because they were a little bit like, what it, when it's a son of something, it means that they're characterized by that thing. 
Sons of thunder, they were characterized by thunder. In other words, and if you remember, there was a time where they were going through a village one time and they didn't accept Jesus. They didn't receive Jesus. And, and they're like, hey, do you want us to call on fire from heaven? Right? This, they're known as sons of, why? I bet you they have a bit of a short temper. That's what it's, they're characterized by being like thunder, right? And they're like, you know, like they're, they're, they're furious and they just strike in any moment kind of thing, you know? And, and that's what they're characterized. A son of was characterized by that thing. So a son of Baal would be somebody that was characterized or represented very, very clearly their god, Baal. A son of foolishness was somebody that was a fool. <laughs> they were characterized by foolishness. Sons of oil would be characterized by the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through them. And this is the reality of those that move for God. His eyes look. They range throughout the earth to strengthen them. Those that are doing the small things for God, they want to strengthen them so that he can pour out his Holy Spirit upon them, that they might be sons of oil represented by the work of the Spirit. And so as we close this morning, might mountains move? Yeah, you know what? By the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you, they will. And let me just ask you this morning as we wrap up, what is God calling you to right now that you just feel you can't? You can't, I can't, I can't, God, God, I can't. Yeah, I want to say this. You're right. You can't. You can't. Not by might, nor by power, whether by the many or the one, you can't, but by God's Spirit, you can. I don't even know why we try to live this life without the power of the Holy Spirit when God says all you have to do is ask. You know, this morning, maybe you're here and, and you say you can't, and maybe it's you can't because you've never surrendered to Jesus. I want you to know this morning that you can surrender your life to Christ today and you can have a new life. It's the best deal going. There's no better deal around. You just trade your life for his. He takes your past and he gives you a whole new future. God wants to give you a new life and and not just a new life, but even the power to live that life for him today. Or maybe you're here and, and you say you can't because you've been relying on your own strength. Or maybe the strength of others. And it's like, I, I, I can't. I keep trying. You know, these guys, these gals are supposed to help me, but I can't. I keep trying on myself, but I can't. And God says, I know it's not about might and it's not about power. It's about my spirit. You need my spirit. I, don't know, I just want to encourage you. If that's you, you just need to ask him to fill you today with his spirit. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. What's the picture we had? An unending supply. It wasn't just one tank. It was an unending supply of Holy Spirit oil into your life to empower you. Every day, every minute of every day. And you just got to ask. You just got to ask. You know, there's a great, um, Jesus talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And what did he say? He says, all you have to do is ask. He said, He's, we overcomplicate it, but, but, but he said, you know what? Even if you know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, though you are evil, he compares me as a father, and I love my kids with my whole heart, but me compared to God the Father, I'm like evil. And he says, if, if, if you give good gifts to your children, and that's how you are, how much more will God the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? We just got to ask. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.